We all tend to know when something is not the real thing, when it's a fake. It's like an instinctive thing that we have. We, we just spot fakes. If something isn't real, if it's not the real deal, we, we identify it right away. I don't think it's a trait that's even isolated to humanity. I remember when we had our dog and we'd have to give our dog medicine. He could spot that pill and so we, we would try to hide it. His favorite treat was a glob of peanut butter. So we would stick it deep in a glob of peanut butter and he'd sniff our finger and he could smell the peanut butter and he wanted that more than he was opposed to the, the pill. So he'd open up his mouth and we could put the, the glob in. But you know, we still had to shove it way in the back of his mouth because unless it got far enough back where he swallowed the whole thing, somehow he could suck off all that peanut butter and still spit the pill out. The pill was not the real deal. It was not what he wanted. I'm, I'm sure we've recognized this with children too. We, we all try to use the bait and switch approach time with kids. We, we know it's time to introduce the kids to something that would be healthy for them. You know, maybe those wonderful veggies and, and they love their fruit, but they, they see this veg, veggie coming on the spoon, you know, all nice and pureed, pureed the way it is, you know, ground up and whatever, and they turn their nose at it. They won't take it. So what do we do? We, we grab that jar of fruit that we know they like, and we put applesauce on the spoon, and we give them a couple spoonful of applesauce, and then we put a little bit of veggies underneath the applesauce without them seeing it and try to sneak it in. And we get this horrendous look on their face. They've been tricked. They know this is not the real thing. They know a fake when they taste it. I wonder if that's why children's develop such suspicious natures. I hope as adults we're not overly suspicious. But I know that we have not lost our ability to identify that which is fake. We know how to see something when it's not the genuine article. We know if it's not real. We spot fakes, and that includes fake love. We know when love is not genuine. This morning, we're going to begin a new series with this topic of what is genuine love? How do we develop genuine love? I, I anticipate that this series will run through the summer all the way into the fall. Since it's going to take a significant amount of time for us to go through this series, my goal today is just to introduce it to you and to demonstrate why I believe it's worthwhile for us to dedicate significant amount of time to this topic, this topic of genuine love. Please understand, I, I don't commit to a sermon series flippantly. I, I take my responsibility to teach the entire Word of God seriously. And, and even if I could count on all of you giving me more than one hour a week, I would never have enough time to teach everything in the Word of God to the level that I would like to see it taught. Sadly, I also know that this is the only time of the week I'll see many of you. So I don't take this sermon series that's going to run six months lightly. I'm going to be careful with it. I'm going to make sure that we use it in a, in a way that is beneficial to us. Many of you understand that, I think. I think it's a s worthwhile for us to then invest a serious amount of our time. My, my goal this morning, though, is to walk through why I think it's worth that investment of time. 
I think it's important that we lay the groundwork for what we will have in the coming weeks going forward. So this series, as I've already indicated, I've entitled Developing Genuine Love. Obviously, the, the series is about love. It's a specific type of love. It's genuine love, that which is not fake, that which is real. The, the first thing that I want us to consider as we think about this is that Christians are distinguished by love. This is the first reason that I believe it's worthwhile for us to invest significant portion of our lives over the coming months to understanding and, and, and diving into and investigating what is genuine love and how do we develop it. Christians are distinguished by love. If you have your Bibles with me this morning, I, I would like you to turn to John 13. If you don't have a physical Bible, I'm sure you have a phone, you can pull up a Bible app on your phone or go to an on on site or online website and find a Bible there. I want you to see this morning words that our Lord spoke. In John 13, he spoke. In just a moment, I'll direct you to a couple of specific verses toward the end of the chapter, but I want to place these verses into context so you understand what's going on when the Lord says these words. John in, in John 13 is giving us a record of events that happened in the upper room, the, the final night of our Lord's life before he went to the cross. Our Lord had gathered his disciples into the upper room and they had celebrated the final Passover together. He had just finished eating with his disciples at the time we're going to look at, the night before his crucifixion. Judas the betrayer had just departed. So now Jesus is there with his 11 faithful men. He's giving them the final words they can leave with them before he knows his arrest will come and he'll go to the cross. Look at the words he speaks in verses 34 and 35. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. As I said, Jesus is about to go away. But these 11 men, they will still remain. They will have each other. They will be left to carry on. The, the one who has loved them fully is about to leave them. Jesus is about to die on the cross, but he's not leaving them alone. They have each other this small band of men will still be together. How can a small band of men stay banded together, though, when, when the unifying force that brought them together is no longer there? They've gathered because of Jesus. They've gathered because he is the one who attracted them, and now he'll be gone. Jesus will no longer be there. What will remain to unify this band? Well, the answer is what Jesus just says. Before he departed, he gave them a new command. A new command to love one another as he had loved them. The, the idea of love is not new for these men. Jesus has loved them for most of them around three years now as he's gone about his public ministry. Furthermore, Jesus is about to demonstrate the greatest example of love in human history. 
Within 24 hours, he will die on the cross for their sins. The idea of love is not fresh. But what is fresh is that these men should transfer what they've experienced from Jesus to one another. What they've been receiving now is to be given. They are to exercise toward each other the type of love that they've experienced from Jesus. They are to love one another even as I have loved you. Why? Why are they to do this? Why are these 11 men to continue loving each other? Why are they to love so genuinely? Well, Jesus says, this love, this kind of sacrificial, this, this willing to die for one another, genuine love that will distinguish them, it will be the greatest evidence to the world that they are his disciples. The, the world at large will be able to test the genuineness of this group of men by looking at their love, by examining what they have toward one another in love. Now, I keep talking about these 11 men. They have this. This is what God or Christ told them on the last night. I recognize none of us were in the upper room. We're 2,000 years beyond the upper room when Jesus said these things to these 11 men. If this were the only place in the New Testament where we found this instruction, then we could potentially isolate this new command that Jesus left here as a survival strategy that he gave to these 11 men. We could say, you know, this is what he told them to do so they would survive until he came back from the dead, till his resurrection occurred. This is what will keep them together for those three hard days. We could say that if this were the only place we found this command. If you've joined us for one another services over the years, you know by now that the command to love one another is the most frequent command in the New Testament. If the most frequent one another command we find anywhere, we find lots of one another commands. We're to encourage one another. We're to comfort one another. We're to, to admonish one another. We're to do a lot of things with one another. But the most frequent thing we're told to do with one another is love one another. Depending on how you count it, this command to love one another, it shows up 16 times in the New Testament frequently showing up in the epistles, in the epistles of commands that were passed along to those of us who make up the New Testament church. In other words, this command was not left in the upper room with the 11 disciples. It was transferred by them to those who became their disciples. For example, in Peter's first letter that that we just finished examining over the, the many months leading up to this, two, months, or two weeks ago, we, we finished it. Well, Peter says in 1 Peter one twenty two that we are to fervently love one another from the heart. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3.12 says that the, the Lord would cause us to increase and abound in love for one another. John himself, the, the apostle that, that records these words that we're looking at, writes in his epistle to the church, in his first letter to the church, that if God so loved us, 
And in the context, he's talking about how God sent Jesus be propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins. If God so loved us by sending his son to, to be the satisfaction of our sins, then we ought also to love one another. There, there's simply no escaping the idea that the New Testament consistently teaches that we should serve as those who love one another. That our distinguishing characteristic as believers should be our love for each other. That's what should set us apart from everyone else in this world, is how we love one another. The question that I want us to ask ourselves this morning, as, as we start out this series, is, is this our distinguishing characteristic? Is love the distinguishing characteristic in our lives? Is love for one another what sets us apart as a church? What distinguishes us? The, the impression that the New Testament creates is that the love that we have for one another should set us apart. It, it should make us unique from the world around us. We should be different. In fact, it appears that our love for one another should have such a remarkable character in it that, that it enables us to impact the world around us. That we leave a mark on the world because of the love that we have for one another. Let's be honest with ourselves. Our church building has been in this location here in Sterling Heights now for over 50 years. Now, I know this building is not the church. Our building has been here for over 50 years, and yet I regularly meet people who do not even know this building exists. I, I tell people where our church building is located, and they're like, hmm, wow, I drive by on Ryan Road all the time. I never noticed it there. Well, I'll readily admit, I don't frequently notice other buildings too. I mean, there's nothing that remarkable about our building. I, I get why they may not notice the building as they drive by. But how about the people who have been gathering here for the past 50 years? What kind of mark are we leaving on our neighborhood, on the city around us? Shouldn't the people who gather in this building be remarkable? Shouldn't they be noticeable? Shouldn't the love that we have make an impact on this world such that the surrounding city knows we exist? Now, I think in some sense, as we look over the, the many years of the church, we have made a mark on the world around us. There's been missionaries that have come out from this church body. There have been pastors that have come forth from this church body. There's been gospel witnesses that have gone out, friends and family that, and neighbors that have been impacted by the gospel, that have been baptized into, as in the, the building here as they've come together. There's been some level of impact. But are we truly distinguished by our love the way that we ought to be? How many of us leave this building this week after we have this assembly and really don't see anyone else the rest of the week? How can we love one another when we don't even contact each other? The New Testament seems to imply that our love for one another should be world-shaking. These 11 disciples that... Christ spoke to in the upper room, they went out and they changed the world. Yes, my theology understands that they changed it as the Holy Spirit moves in people's lives. 
The Holy Spirit is the ultimate mover. But he used the love of these men for each other to bring it about. There was something that was so unique, so special. When unbelievers happen to interact with a group of us, when, when they come together and, and they see a group of us and they happen to join in for some reason, they're connected because we're all at a sporting event together or we're at a restaurant together. or something. When they see us together, if there's something so unique about our love for each other that it's singularly attractive, that they want whatever it is that they're seeing. Our love for one another should attract people to our Savior. Our love for one another should attract people to the one who loves us so fully that he gave himself for us. The first consideration that that causes me to believe that it is important for us to spend time examining genuine love is this one. Christians are distinguished by love. Christians are distinguished by love. That the second thing that I want us to consider as, as we launch this series is that Christians must discern biblical love. We must discern biblical love. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point this morning. In fact, most of our series will be around this idea. But I want to ensure that we recognize that it's only a biblical love that, that will distinguish Christians. It's the only thing that will set us apart, that will be that, that remarkable evidence. It's possible that, that the reason that we're not impacting the world as we ought, that, that the reason that our love is not distinguishing us as it ought, it's possible that the issue is that we're failing to discern biblical love as we must. We're not discerning what is biblical love. Love, as you know, is a very common word in our culture. At the same time, it's a word that's used in a lot of different ways. Clearly, I do not love my granddaughter Finley the same way that I love pizza. Nor do I love my granddaughter the same way that I love my wife. I do not love my wife the same way that I love the spring day that we had yesterday, and and so on. There's various kinds of loves, and, and these various loves may or may not be biblical love, but they're certainly not all the same. To compound that, that challenge that we have all these different kinds of love, to compound the challenge of discerning what is biblical, we need to recognize we live in an ungodly world. Ungodly. The, the culture that we breathe, the, the milieu that, that we have in our, uh, for our lives, it's infused with ungodly assumptions. Now, unless we are really diligent, unless we really take the time, we do not even realize that the degree of impact that our culture has upon our worldview. We look at the world through, through eyes that are impacted by the world around us without even realizing it. The, the world's way of thinking is so natural to us that, that we don't stop and analyze whether it's biblical or not. Such is the case when it comes to the idea of love. As I said, the world uses this word all the time. And much of the time, the world is used in a way that's different, drastically different from the way it's used in the Bible. 
in the society around us. There are concepts that are expressed with this word love that are regularly self-centered within their goal. Our own pleasure and our own enjoyment becomes the object of love when the word is used in the world's ways many, many times. We, we see that idea expressed when we use the word love for pizza. You know, love food. Well, that's a self-centered goal. I am receiving pleasure from pizza. That's why I love it. When our world uses this word, oftentimes it uses it even as a euphemism for all kinds of romantic and sexual activities. Things that are very contrary to Bible, directly in conflict with, with Bible, where self is at the extreme center. The idea of love, the way the world uses it, oftentimes makes it into a quest to, to conquer and, and to acquire that which is most desired. That's the most unbiblical idea. The, the times when we see love in the Bible, it's very different. Love in the Bible, as I've already mentioned through the greatest display that we have of Christ, is an others-focused idea. When Christ died on the cross, he died for others. Husbands are told by Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, that they are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. There's an others-focus to that love. Time and again, love in the Bible focuses on others, not on self. Biblical love is about what is best for someone else, not what is most satisfying to me. Of course, when, when I spell it out carefully like this, we, we see the distinction, don't we? We can grasp the, the, the great gulf that lies between the two extremes. We, we recognize there's a wide gulf between biblical love and worldly love. But most of the time, we fail to exercise such careful discernment when we go about our own lives. When we step back and we describe it like this, we say, yep, they're very different animals. But then we go through our lives where we live in this area in between and we don't stop and think about it. For example, how many times this past week, just in this past week, have you saw examples of unbiblical love on TV? Do you have any idea how many times? I don't. I'll confess myself, I don't. Unbiblical love is such a part of our culture that it just becomes the backdrop to so many storylines that it comes and goes past our, our faces as we're watching without even stopping to think about, huh, that really is contrary to Scripture. It, we don't even have it draw our attention to it. Characters seek their own satisfaction and they call it love. We know that's unbiblical if we stop and think about it. We know many times what's being de depicted is illicit and immoral if we stop and think about it. But we don't stop and think about it. It doesn't even raise our eyebrows because it's just the world we live in. And that's when we begin to fail to discern biblical love. The problem is that we do this over and over we fail to discern the, the, the unbiblical thinking of our world so often that the world's way of thinking becomes our way of thinking. Our worldview gets affected by the world around us. 
Christians begin to believe that they can fall in and out of love because the world around them says you can fall in and out of love. The result is that divorce rates among Christian marriages matches that of the unsaved. Christians begin to accept that pursuing love means pursuing self-satisfaction, such that professing Christians start to match up to unbelievers in all kinds of categories like premarital sex, obesity, alcoholism, gambling addictions, pornography, and and so forth. Because the world's definition of love is that which pleases me, that which brings pleasure to me. Friends, Christians must discern unbiblical love. That's the second consideration that that led me to this series. Christians must discern unbiblical love. Third, uh, I want us to recognize as we launch this series, thirdly, that, that Christians must then display genuine love. Christians must display genuine love. I trust that you still have your Bibles nearby. Please turn or or pull up Romans chapter 12. We're we're finally coming to the passage that is going to serve as the centerpiece for this series. Romans 12, 9 through 21. This is the passage that we are going to spend the next many months working our way through. Paul writes in verse 9 of Romans 12, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in spirit, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here in Romans 12, Paul has begun discussing the the practical impact that salvation is to have on our lives. He spent the, the first many chapters of Roman describing salvation, defining it carefully, and now he's showing us that that salvation is to make us different. It's to transform us so that, that we do not conform to the world around us, so that the way the world keeps pressing in on our thinking, developing a worldview that is antithetical to Scripture, will not be ours. That we will not conform to the world. The relationship that we have through faith with Jesus Christ, changes us. And as we change, Paul points out, we become increasingly more useful to God. We're able to increasingly magnify Christ to the world around us. One of the things that enables us to magnify Christ more effectively is that God gives us spiritual gifts that allow us to serve Christ through the church. Paul discusses these gifts in verses 3 through 8 of of Romans 12. Very much 
then like he does in, in 1 Corinthians 12, if you're going to list word of Paul talk about spiritual gifts, it will immediately come to your mind. Well, probably Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Well, in both cases, after he discusses spiritual gifts, he moves from the spiritual gifts to the topic of Christian love. The great love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 is right after the spiritual gifts. Here, verse 9 comes right after he was talking about spiritual gifts. And as he moves to the topic, look at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Love. It becomes this overarching umbrella for the remainder of the chapter. Love. Love. And then Paul begins to list characteristics that, that should be found in our relationships with one another. If we're to love one another, our love ought to be made up with these kind of characteristics. And Lord willing, we're going to look at each of these characteristics over the next many weeks. For the remainder of the few minutes I want to still take this morning, I want us to consider this first phrase here in verse 9. It shows us that, that Christians must display genuine love. Let love be without hypocrisy. Undoubtedly, you have something like that in the first phrase of verse 9. Depending on translation, you might have something like, love must be without hypocrisy, or love must be sincere, let love be genuine. Something of that way is the way the various translators have handled the, the first part of the verse. If you look carefully, though, especially if you have a print version, you'll notice that many of your Bibles put the verbs in italics. That, that means that those have been added by the translators. In the original Greek, Paul doesn't include a verb at all in the first phrase. He, he simply writes, love without hypocrisy. That forces us to mentally add some sort of a verb in our mind. That's what the translators have done for us. Since Paul has been giving exhortations throughout the chapter, here's what we're to do. Translators have added some sort of an exhortation hortative type of verb, an imperative idea. And I'm sure that's correct, but I want us to recognize that in the original wording that Paul writes, he just writes love without hypocrisy. It's striking how we hit verse 9 and it's disconnected from anything previously. This lack of verb even causes it to be more disconnected. It's as if Paul is, is giving us a list, and at the very top of the list, as he writes the header for what is this list, this is love without hypocrisy. And then he starts giving us bullet points below that, that describe what this is. He's starting a list, and, and these various phrases give us descriptions. In, in fact, in the original, Paul puts a definite article. If we're going to translate it correctly, it'll be the love without hypocrisy. There's a specific kind of love. This is the love, the well-known love, the, the kind that we are to know all about because we are Christians. We are the ones saved. We've had the, been justified by faith. We are saved. It's to transform us. We are to have the love without hypocrisy. Paul's goal, though, is not simply describe it as he builds this bullet list. He does want us to take on these characteristics. He's exhorting us. We are to have this kind of love that's described here. So the imperative idea is proper. What does it mean to have love without hypocrisy? That the word hypocrite from which this word is taken is, was a well-known Greek word. It, it was a word that was used to describe a stage actor in, in the Greek theaters. The, the actors in the theaters, they wore these masks. 
and, and the masks would let you know what part they were playing. The actors may play many parts, and they may even have swap based on who's on stage at the time, but the mask that they held over their face, that defined their character. Uh, a given actor could play a lot of roles, but you knew who he was because of the mask he put on. The mask was who that person, that actor, was pretending to be. Everyone clearly knew that wasn't who they really were. That's who they were pretending to be. It was their, their role. They were a hypocrite. We all understand the idea of putting on a mask, don't we? Uh, putting on a falsehood. Some of you may be wearing a false mask right this moment. And if not today, I guarantee you've done it sometime in the past. We all have. Things have fallen apart on a Sunday morning. We're trying to get the kids in the car for church, and right as you're about to go out the door, they spill their breakfast on in their lap. Well, Dad's already out in the car. He's honking the horn because it's time to go. Mom's frantically trying to get the child cleaned up and out the door, and then right she goes out the door. She remembers she forgot to turn the oven on, so she runs back in, and Dad's honking the horn some more because it doesn't matter. It's his meal that's getting prepared. It's time to go. Well, you finally get on the road, and of course, you hit the construction delay you didn't know about. Popped up on the weekend, and now dad's grumbling, mom's steaming, and the kids are just simply holding their breath, trying to stay under the radar until they can get out of the car. You pull in the parking lot, you slam the door, walk towards the church, come through the church doors, and someone greets you. Good morning, how are you? How do you respond? Somewhere magically from slamming the door to the, the door of the church, that Sunday mask went on. Wonderful. It's great to see you too. I'm so glad to be here. Hypocrisy. The original word carried that kind of meaning, pretending something other than the truth. By contrast, the word without hypocrisy is the opposite. The, the word without hypocrisy in, in the original is one word, not two as we have in English. Th this word without hypocrisy is used five other times in the New Testament, always meaning that which is real, that which is genuine, that which is sincere. In 1 Timothy 1.5 and 2 Timothy 1.5, both 1.5s there, Paul uses this word to describe a sincere faith, a, a genuine faith, the real deal. In James 3.17, this word is describe a, a specific type of wisdom, the wisdom that is from above, the, the real wisdom that we can get from God alone. The other two times the New Testament uses this term is 2 Corinthians 6.6 6 and 1 Peter 1.22. And in both times, like here, this word is used to emphasize Christian love. The kind of love that is genuine and sincere. The kind that Christians are to have for one another. In 2 Corinthians 6, 4-6, through 6, Paul says, In everything commending yourselves as servants of God, and then he lists a bunch of things, and among them he says, In everything commending yourselves have genuine love. In 1 Peter 1.22, Peter writes, Since you have in obedience to truth purified your souls, for a sincere love of the brother, there's our word, sincere love of the brother, fervently love one another from the heart. Here in Roman, Paul is clearly setting up a list that, that defines genuine love. 
Love that is the real deal. Love that is that which is meant to characterize Christians because it is on such prominent display. Genuine love. The love we are to have for one another. The love that will shake this world for Christ. One thing that we would never knowingly allow stand with our children when they were growing up was fake obedience. We knew that fake obedience was disobedience. We were not satisfied if they only pretended to obey. For example, if we happened to tell them to clean up the room, if we were to go up there and find that cleaning was really they pushed everything under the bed and into the closet, we would not be satisfied. We would be unhappy because we would recognize that pretend obedience is disobedience. It, it would indicate a lack of respect for our parental authority, a, a disregard for us as their parents. In similar fashion, fake love, hypocrisy-type love, is not genuine love. It's something else. Yet our world is calling us to love all kinds of things that are fake. Our world is telling us to call a lot of things love that are fake. Our world's taught us to, to put on this mask and pretend it's love. Our world has taught us to indulge ourselves and to call it love. But it's not. It's a fake. Could the problem be, at least in part, that, that we're so used to faking love that we no longer even know the real thing. Re remember, sin corrupts everything it touches. Sin corrupts everything. Our view of love undoubtedly has been impacted by the corruption of sin. Our understanding of sin has been affected by it. Yet God calls us to genuine love. God calls us to discern the real thing and then practice the real thing. We are to have genuine love, not fake love. And the reason that God calls us to, the, the reason, the, the fundamental idea why this is so important is because genuine love reflects a genuine Christ. Genuine love reflects a genuine Christ. A Christ who loved us by dying for us. A Christ who defines love for us. A Christ who calls us to love one another. A Christ who loves the world. Genuine love reflects a genuine Christ. Christians must display genuine love. Genuine love reflects a genuine Christ. I, I trust that we all see the importance of genuine love here in our Christian lives. We're only beginning this series, so we may not know all the components of genuine love. We, we haven't went through that yet, but we may already know enough to know whether we're faking it or not. Are we faking our love? Are you faking your love? Are you faking love for the people around you? Remember our considerations this morning. Christians are distinguished by love. Genuine love is our fundamental distinguishing indicator. It's our mark that we're one of Christ. 
Two, Christians must discern biblical love. Not everything that the world labels is genuine love. We are to show genuine love. We must discern what is genuine biblical love. And then third, we are to display that genuine love. We are to display We're not simply know what it is. We are to put it into action, give it arms and feet. We are to love one another. How are you doing? Are you reflecting a genuine Christ through genuine love? We don't need to know all the components of genuine love to begin asking ourselves that basic question. Is our love centered on ourselves, or is our love centered on Christ and through Christ on others? If we're like him, we will be concerned with others. Are we pretending love or do we genuinely love? It really is not too soon to ask ourselves those questions, nor is it too soon to begin confessing our failure before God, a God who loved us enough to send his Son, a God who transforms us when we are in Christ. We can confess our failure before him and start living in genuine love. Genuine love reflects a genuine Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would indeed help us to be men and women who have genuine love, that reflect a genuine Christ. May we love one another as we ought. Father, my prayer is that you would use this series as we go through it in the coming months to change us, to be like Christ to change us to truly love one another. It's in his name we pray. Amen.